Let's stand together at this time. We're going to be looking in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 at a message I call simply belonging. Belonging. Remember, we're taking a look at Christianity, a biblical view of what being a Christian, what Christianity is. And uh, today we're here, belonging. Verse 9, 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And holy nation, a peculiar people. That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. Which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. We have considered how that being a Christian is about becoming. We say that because no one is born a Christian. No one. If you're a Christian today, it's because you became one. And that is why that Jesus talked about not just our physical birth, but also our spiritual birth. And why he told us in such marvelous and instructive language, you must be born again. And we're born again, and we'll come back to this later in today's message. You're born again as you understand your sinfulness and the truth of the gospel. How that Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And we then, under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, understand that his death can count as my death. That his burial can become my burial. His resurrection life then can become my resurrection life so that I can walk in newness of life with him. And we believe, yes, that he died for me. That he died for you. And when we do that, we experience that new birth as we've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen how a Christian is someone who believes. And we discuss some of the great principles of our faith, the things that we believe. Because being a Christian affects how we view the world, what we call our worldview. Our view of family, our view of marriage, our view of work, our view of finances, and our view of many, many other things are affected by the fact that we are a Christian And it is all determined by the truth of Scripture. Because as believers in Christ then, we have His own Word that guides us and leads us. And we respect then the authority of the Scriptures. And we endeavor, though we fail and fall short, we endeavor to live our lives according to its truth. Being a Christian is about becoming. Being a Christian is about believing. Being a Christian... Then, like many other things, can be described by what it does. What it does. And this brings us to our behavior. We saw last week that we must make a decision whether to walk in the flesh, which comes naturally to us. We don't have to do anything to be in the flesh. That is our default mode. But then, to walk in the Spirit, we must set our mind, our affection on things above. We must make it our objective then to live this day in the power and the fullness of the Spirit of God. And that affects the way that we live. We don't want to become an enemy of the cross of Christ. Paul warned us about that. 
We don't want to be the kind of person whose testimony is such that those who know us best, those closest to us, those that we care the most about, would have to be dragged over our testimony in order to believe in Christ. Our behavior matters. And so being a Christian is about behavior, how we behave. And today we'll begin looking at the fourth of these. How that being a Christian is about the word belonging. Now in our text today, we're reading the words of the aged Apostle Peter. Facing his own mortality, Jesus had told him that when he was old, they would take him, bind him, take him where he didn't want to go. And so he could see that gray hair perhaps on his head. He knew the years were adding up and his time was short. That's natural for all of us. Uh, I'm a whole lot closer to the finish line at this stage in life than I am the starting line. Hey, I don't expect to live to be 128. Really don't. Neither do you. We're closer to the finish line. So Simon Peter, though, had that special word from the Lord. He knew he wasn't going to die young. That's encouraging. When you're old, Jesus said. Now he knows his time is short, and he told him, and so he writes this epistle. He, he begins it by telling him, I'm old, and I know that my time is short, just like Jesus showed me. So as he begins to think about what to say to those who are going to be left behind to continue their service of Christ after he went on to glory, he talked about uh, the words in our text. That's, that's kind of the setting that we find he began his thoughts earlier in verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2 where he spoke of coming to him, that's Jesus, as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our mind jumps quickly from that passage to the time when he was a much younger man with Jesus in Caesarea Philippi. The time when Jesus asked him a question, who do men, who do people say that I am? And there's a variety of answers, of course, to that. Then he got very pointed, very direct, and he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter was the one that answered. He said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's in Matthew 16. And Jesus then responded to that, saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but the Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you, this was unto Peter, I say unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We read these passages in First Peter, and obviously Simon Peter has those things on his mind. You see, Jesus would speak of himself in Matthew 16, when he said, upon this rock, he used two different words there. It's not apparent necessarily in Greek. Peter in Greek is a word for rock. And then there's, of course, another word for rock. But there are two different words. One refers to what we would call a foundational stone, a great stone. Uh, that even bulldozers and big powerful pieces of equipment would have trouble moving it. A huge, huge bedrock kind of stone. And the, the word that he used then for Simon Peter, now you're a, you're a small stone, a little stone. Different word. And, G, and Peter then would speak of Jesus as being that 
great rock, that living stone then that we come to. Uh, we come to that rock. Uh, you see, the, the rock doesn't come to We come to that rock. We come to him. We understand who Jesus is. We understand what he is. We understand the reality of that confession that he had made so long ago. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the only begotten son of God. One of a kind, unique. We come to him then. We come to him. But when we do, we become a piece of that rock. We are united to him. We take on his character. We become a living stone. That's what Jesus had told Peter in essence. And now he is passing that along to us. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, etc., like Simon Peter then so long ago, we come to that truth to Jesus as the great immovable rock of our faith and that we then are living stones. Now, when we lived in Saline County, white quartz rocks were everywhere. Now, it's just part of life in Saline County. In our yard, every time it rained, it seemed like I discovered a new crop of rocks. They were just there. We had a Labrador retriever at the time, and he loved digging those rocks up. It was one of his favorite things to do, and especially after it rained. I mean, there's a whole new bunch of rocks for him to find and dig up. If they were small enough, he would put them in his mouth then and bring them around and lay them around in strategic places. Usually in a place where I'd be sure and trip over them, especially if it was dark. Right by the door of my car, right by the door of the house. I don't know why he played that game. That was his game. Dig up rocks, carry them, put them out somewhere where you'll trip over them or hit them with a lawnmower. Every now and then, he'd run into one that was too big. And he would dig patiently and dig and dig on it until he finally could hike it around. And he hiked it like a football. I'm, I'm not making this up. He hiked it through his back legs, and then he'd turn around and bark at it. Bark, bark, bark. And then he'd get on it and hike it again. Bark, bark. We'd usually leave it out in the driveway. So when we came home then, we'd understand. General's found another rock. He's left it out there so we can see it. Good boy. Good boy. And, uh, there is a point to all this madness. You see, uh, I learned a lesson. If I never knew it before, I learned that a rock, especially a big, fairly good-sized rock, just off to itself is really not much good for anything. It's kind of annoying. It's irritating. It's in the way you trip over a lot. I'm not saying it has no function. God didn't make any junk, but I'm just telling you, if you got just a rock laying out in the middle of your yard or your driveway... It's just kind of in the way. You've got to deal with it. But if you take that rock, and even if all you do is pile it up in a pile and begin to put it around your fence row or around your trees, or if you do something with it, if you make it a part of a, a wall or a building or a structure, all of a sudden that rock has function. It's accomplishing something. That's exactly what Simon Peter is telling us in this passage. 
that Jesus Christ, when we come to him, makes us a living stone. And we are builded together then with other living stones into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and can therefore offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. You see, God did not create us in Christ for Christian isolation. No more than we would take a newborn baby and throw him out in the field. We put a newborn baby according to God's plan, at least. We put that newborn baby in a family where it can be nourished and taught and where it can grow and built up. And so Simon Peter pictures us as Christians, as living stones, not just being built up as any kind of house, but as a spiritual house where a holy priesthood offers up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when we're thinking about that concept of belonging, as Simon Peter presents it in this passage, it's a great passage. He is telling us then that we belong to, because we are in Christ and being a Christian, we're not just existing in isolation. We are a part of a building that Jesus Christ is building, a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. It's also important that we carefully notice that Simon Peter did not say where we, the apostles, are being made a holy priesthood, but you. You all. Now, who are the you all? (laughs) Uh, I'm glad you asked because it's the same people who are coming to him in verse 4. Coming to him as unto a a, a lively stone. We we come to him as as that foundational stone. And then we're being made into this holy. It's it's all of you. Those same ones. And he had identified him again in verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking... As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. See, Simon Peter's not describing a Christianity where people come to watch other people being formed into a spiritual house or to watch some spiritual elite few become a holy priesthood that therefore can offer priests that are acceptable to God, that is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is a place where people are first born into that family as newborn babes then desiring the sincere milk of the Word so that we can grow. And as we're nourished by the Word of God, we are built into a spiritual house and we become a holy priesthood so that we can offer sacrifice, service, and worship to God that He accepts through Jesus Christ. The result of which then is that we become a chosen generation, that's what our text said, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, And yes, a peculiar people. Now, I know all of your modern versions have that as God's own special people. And that's what it means. But sometimes it means peculiar. (laughs) Uh, So if it ever seems like we're just a little bit odd, okay. I've got God's word on that. We're a peculiar people. We are. The important thing for us to note today is that all of these are nouns of multitude. All of them. 
They describe groups, not individuals. It's all the same group. Remember that no one is born a Christian. We must become a Christian, and we do that through the new birth. And remember, I told you we'd come back to that, and that's because Simon Peter uses that exact expression in this context. 1 Peter 1, 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. That enduring eternal word of God contains the truth of the gospel. You see, every person who was ever born physically was born because of a seed. A seed that was planted by a father and received by a mother so that a child is formed in her womb and about nine months later, nine months later, she, it is born into this world. Every person who is alive on this planet today is alive because there was a seed that was planted. There was a seed that was received and a child was formed. And then the amazing, amazing truth of God. Then we were born into our Father's image, our Heavenly Father, and also into our earthly Father. The new birth is also, Simon Peter says, produced by seed, but not a quickly decaying seed of a man, but by the eternal Word of God. So that the gospel is declared to you, if you've been born again, the gospel was declared to you. Then if you are to be born again, it must be received by you. And if you are born again today, it's because you received that gospel message. And that's how you were born again. That's what Simon Peter says. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, by the power of the gospel. That's right there in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23 through 25. You see, God's plan for our physical birth included a family. And God's plan for our spiritual birth also included a family. And as such then, we become a generation, a priesthood, a nation, and a peculiar or special people, the people of God. He would go back to this idea of the house of God later in 1 Peter chapter 4. For the time has come, he says, for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins first with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And you can see in this passage of Scripture very clearly that there are two groups of people who are presented. Those who are in the house of God and those who are not in the house of God. Judgment would begin, by the way, at the house of God. That means that if God is going to judge America, you know where he's going to start? Here. With us, with his own people. Now, I might, uh, I hesitate to say this, but it's already out, so I might as well go ahead. I can't stop now. <laughs> if maybe back in my childbearing, uh, childbearing, child raising, rearing days, There was a bunch of my kids out, a bunch of our kids, a bunch of my kids, everybody else's kids out in the yard misbehaving. And I determined as a faithful parent then that they needed discipline. 
Now, the whole bunch probably needs a, a good swatting with the fly swatter, but where do you think I'm going to start? With mine. Not that that ever happened. I, that's just an illustration. <laughs> that's just an illustration. And if there's a bunch of kids that need it, yeah, I would start with mine. God is the same way. Judgment begins at the house of God. But if that's true, and Simon Peter says it is true, then what do you think of those, what do you think it will be for those who obey not the gospel? Read the book of Revelation and you'll get the answer to that question. But you see very clearly then that Simon Peter speaks of those who are a part of the spiritual house and those who are not. Those who are not are lost because they have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then we also add in 1 Timothy 3 and 15. But if I'm delayed, and this was written by Paul, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul speaks of the house of God as being the church, the church of the living God. Timothy was in Ephesus and serving the church at Ephesus. Paul wasn't writing then to Timothy about how that he should behave himself among the entirety of all the Christian family or of all the saved people in all the world. No, Timothy was working with the church at Ephesus. And so the house of God in that context take on a very specific meaning. And that's why Paul went on to declare that meaning, which is the church of the living God. Which church? The one Timothy was serving in. The one that Timothy needed to know how to behave in and needed to know how to teach other people how to behave in, in a local church. Remember last week we talked about how that we are both in Christ and in Cabot. How that in Christ we are seated together in the heavenly places. And yet I also live out on Bud Ford Drive in Cabot, Arkansas. Both of those things are true. We're both in Christ and we are in Cabot. And this carries over then to this whole idea of Christian belonging. Of belonging. Remember, God did not create us to be isolated Christians. He places us in a group setting, Christian belonging. In our next message, we're going to consider more biblically the whole issue of church membership. Because it is a complex issue in today's church culture. We'll also consider more about how a church operates as a body. And how to operate as a member of that body where Christ is the head. It might be one more sermon or it might be two. I haven't decided yet. It depends on how far along I get with this one. But the fact that our Christian belonging plays out on two levels. Whether the Bible pictures us then as being seated in the heavenly places in Christ. But yet we're also living out our life right here in Cabot America uh, the fact that we live on, in those two places means that somehow our sense of belonging must be spelled out in Scripture. And a lot of times they kind of work in their way together so that we're talking about one, but it also applies to the other. In a way, we might think that it's just simple. Okay, well, I'm, I'm in Christ and I'm also in Cabot, but it's, it's not simple. 
It's really not. Now, it was simple. I'll admit that. In the New Testament era, Christian people went everywhere over the world, and as they went and traveled, they took the gospel with them. People were saved, and because they were saved, they were in Christ Jesus. They were baptized, and then they became a part of a group of Christians in that town of community. And we see that over and over in Scripture. That's why there was a church of God at Corinth. That's why there was a church at Ephesus, a church here, church there. So, so they were in Christ, but they also became a part. They belonged to a group of Christians in that town. And as far as I can determine, there doesn't seem to be any exceptions to this after Pentecost. Now, during the gospel, there were exceptions. What church did the demoniac at Gadara join? He didn't. What church did the woman at the well join? She didn't. There were a lot of exceptions you see in the Gospels. But after Pentecost, you don't see any exceptions. Jesus gave them very clear instructions, and that played out then on the day of Pentecost as people were saved and baptized and added to the church. There's a profound passage of Scripture that's often overlooked. It's Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. And it said, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea. Now, this is about the persecution from Saul. But after Saul got saved, then the Bible says, then had the churches rest. This is significant because it's the first time the word churches is found in the New Testament. Before that time, how many churches were there? One. It was the church at Jerusalem. But after that persecution, the people were scattered. You don't have to take my word for it. It's Acts 8 4. Therefore, they were scattered abroad. They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and many, many people believed. And so everywhere then they were seeing people saved. Those people were baptized. They were added to churches and organized as churches. So that where before there was only one church at Jerusalem, now there are churches. And so it's very clear, very unambiguous when somebody was saved in those New Testament times. They were in Christ. They were baptized, made a profession of faith. They were added to the church. Which church? The church in their town. <laughs> Whatever it was. Just that simple. That's well, a little more complex these days, isn't it? Get off the interstate up here on Highway 321. Bill Foster Memorial Highway. And head this direction and go outside of town. And before you get to the red light, you're going to pass Fellowship Bible Church, that church, the Apostolic Church, our church, Faith Baptist, Mount Carmel. If you keep going, there's Oak Grove down the way and, and probably a couple others I can't think about right now. That, that's just one street. When you look in the New Testament, you don't see the first church at Corinth and the second church at Corinth and the 29th church at Corinth. It's just not there. They didn't have that to deal with. We do. We do. It's the world that we've got. Both in Christ then and in Cabot, as we think about that, in Christ and in Cabot, it becomes a bit more complicated this whole belonging part of our faith 
can be downright complex. Where do I go? What church do I belong to? How do we get to where we belong to a church? How does that happen? Uh, what do we do once we belong? How do we function as a body? Well, th these are some of the things that we're going to cover in our next message. Just trying to frame these things out for us this morning. And in order to do that for us, I, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture. Uh, where before we looked at Colossae, we were in Christ and in Colossae. But today I want us to think about how we are in Christ and in Corinth. And I'm just going to read this and make a couple of brief comments and then we'll go on. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now let me say right off the bat that if you try to put water in this passage, you're going to mess it up. And a lot of people have. To me, the meaning of these passages are very clear. But I acknowledge that almost 2,000 years of arguing over them have somewhat muddied up the waters. I have to admit that. But to me, the meaning is very plain. Paul speaks about a body. What body? Anybody. Anybody. How many bodies do I have, Brother Rich? I have one. You might think I have two. I don't. I have one. I have one. But I have many members. But all the members of that body are one body. So, so he's talking about the human body and then he gives us this so also is Christ that is that Christ has a body Christ has a body how do we get in it he tells us for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body and I say to you again he's not talking about water baptism you see the word baptize in the New Testament have very, very specific and clear meaning. It means to put into, something that's put into. It can be in any context. We most usually associate it with water. A person is put into water. You've seen that twice this morning and several times over the last few weeks. Amen and hallelujah. We put somebody into water. We're baptizing them. But the root meaning is always the same. It is to put into something that is put into something else. And sometimes it is obviously referring to water, but other times it's not. Here the passage is very clear. We are baptized by the Spirit. We are immersed, put into who? Christ. It's 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For of one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. That one body of Christ. Whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free... And have all been made to drink into one spirit. He says something similar in Galatians 3 with a different application, by the way. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ. Same concept. We are immersed, put into Christ. And as a result of this, he brings in this passage, You have put on Christ. 
So that Christ then, when we are saved, becomes the preeminent identifying characteristic of our life. We have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Again, water isn't in that passage at all. It speaks of being immersed into Christ. And folks, I want to say this very plainly today as we wrap up. This happens to us when we are saved. When we are born again, we are, by the Spirit of God, immersed into Jesus Christ. Paul would talk about that in Ephesians 5. Don't have this in the notes. Uh, but in Ephesians 5, you know, he talks about that marvelous picture that we have through marriage. So that the two, the Bible says, become one flesh. And where Adam then looked at Eve and said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken of man. But he applies that to our relationship with Jesus Christ. So that we are in him. We are in his, his flesh and of his bone. That is, we become a constituent. He is that foundational stone. We become living stones. We take on then his character, his nature. He changes us. Oh, these are, these are great truths. And so with this section of the belonging, remember this plays out on two spheres. And so we're both in Christ and we're in Cabot. And this morning, I, I hope to be able to get through the in Christ part. And I've pretty well done it. Although I could go a lot longer and bring it. This stuff is all over the New Testament, folk. But let's just understand some things. Paul makes it very clear in Galatians chapter 3 that this happens by faith. It's very plain. For we are all the sons of God, the children of God, by faith in Christ Jesus. This happens by faith. So that we are in Christ, we become a part of Him. And therefore, our belonging as the people of God comes because we're in Christ. And if you just stop and think about it, it is easily illustrated. If Christ only has one body, and He does. And if you're a part of His one body, and I'm a part of His one body, then guess what? We're also connected to each other. And we talk about the family of God, which, by the way, is an expression not found in the New Testament. We are spoken of as being the children of God, the sons of God. We see that here. And I also, but you go looking for the family of God. That's not there. And, but that would be one. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. We talk about that a lot. But as close as a family is, being in the same body is even closer. We're bound together by blood and bone and sinew. and We are holding on to the head who is Christ. So vitally are we connected to each other that we're going to see next week that Paul would even say that if one member suffers, we all suffer. <laughs> if one member is exalted, we all rejoice. Because we're all part of that same body all a part of that same Savior 
so that it can be said of us that we are both in Christ and in Cabot. Now, I'll tell you right now, I don't have time to go into it. I hope you'll come back next week. If you can't come back next week, I'd encourage you to look, listen, look at it online because I'll, I'll tell you where this goes. It's, it's, it's not like well, we can just say, well, okay, this exists. This coexists at the same time. Yes, we are in Christ and we are in Cabot. And we're in Christ because we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been put into him by the Spirit of God. And he's in us. That's true. But being in Cabot brings up the whole subject of the local church. And we need that too. We need that too. And that part of the equation has fallen on hard times in modern America. We'll talk about that later. And I'm just saying to you today, we need both. We need to be in Christ. But we need a body of believers to belong to in Cabot as well. And God's plan spells that out for us. But uh, that all brings us back to that whole subject of believing and it also brings us to this subject of baptism and what it means to us. Um, yes, when we are saved, we are in Christ Jesus. And we're, that happens to us by faith. But then where Jesus puts this local church on display, and when you think about it, it makes sense. Because after all, that's a very visible symbol of our faith. I like making that sound. about as visible as it gets and so when we're talking about being a part of a local visible church it's no wonder we have a visible symbol that we have to go through in order to put our faith on display if you're in this service this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your savior there will never be a better moment than right now for you to make that decision and receive Christ. Jesus Christ loved us, went to the cross and died. Suffered and died for your sins and mine. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. What incredible love that he has for us. And then when we receive him, then we become a part of him. And he becomes a part of us. What an amazing truth this is. And then he tells us, we put that on display before a watching world. If you haven't been saved today, you need to be. If you've been saved, but you haven't followed the Lord in baptism, and it doesn't matter to me whether you're eight, 18 or 80. If you've been saved, but you haven't followed the Lord in baptism, you need to. You need to. You can't be a part of the visible church without it. You need to. Maybe this morning you're thinking, well, you know, I've, I've been saved, I've been baptized, but I'm just not really sure where I'm a member of. We need to get that settled. Well, I come here. I hope you'll come back next week because we're going to talk about how that goes, another takes another step, how it goes a step further so that we make a commitment to this church and this church makes a commitment to you. We're going to talk about that next week. But for now, 
Are you saved? Have you followed him in baptism? Are you serving him in the church? These are decisions you need to think about, pray about. If you've got questions, I'd love to talk to you about them. Let's stand together at this time.